0: Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life today. We are going to do that in one of my favorite ways, which is via a sermon review. Now, if you're new here and you don't know what a sermon review is, each week we go through a variety of different pastors from a variety of different churches, looking at a variety of different sermons and asking three specific questions. One, do they read the scripture? Two, do they exegete the scripture using context and culture? And three, do they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, that may sound like a really low bar to you, and it kind of is, but sometimes we don't hit it, sometimes we go way over it, And today we're going to see where we land. I honestly don't know because I haven't watched this sermon yet because it's been a busy week. Just finished up the Isaiah Saldivar Making of a Minister video if you want to check that out. Um, There'll probably be something up there you can click on to do that after after you watch this sermon review. So, haven't watched this, but this particular pastor comes to us uh, through the emails that I asked you guys to send in regarding pastors that preach the gospel faithfully. So that's where this came from. Now... As I've already said, you've seen the thumbnail, you've read the title, I cannot remember this guy's name because again, I haven't watched this yet and I'm honestly just pulling it up to work through it. So today we're gonna watch this sermon all the way through. It is an hour long sermon, so if you wanna watch this without my commentary, as always, the link is in the description below down there with that link, is going to be a free downloadable PDF guide for uh, you can use. It's a sermon review guide that you can use in your own church or as you watch sermons online as well. I use it when I prep my sermons as well as listen to my pastor preach each Sunday as well. So that being said, we do have an hour in front of us. We don't want to waste any time. Let's get into this sermon from, I think his name, actually, hold on. Give me one second. I got the email pulled up here. His name is Matt Smith. is uh, from San Diego from a Barabbas Road church. There you go. See, it was as easy as opening my phone to read that to you. So let's go ahead and hop in to this sermon uh, and see what we get. Uh, uh, Acts, the book of Acts chapter 12. So go and find your way to Acts chapter 12.
1: And uh, let's look at that. Go and stand with me. I'll read the passage and then we'll jump in. Normally I think we have youth class, but we don't this week because Trace is out of town. So I'm sorry, but it's a youth class
0: week. All right, this is the gre- re- this is the reading of God's holy words starting with Acts chapter 12. Now, as always, in case you're new here, you may not know this, but as always, if a pastor says this is the verse we're going to, or even references a verse, I would encourage you to turn there, or if you don't turn there, take notes and then look at it later, because sometimes some pastors are going to go so fast that you're not going to have a clue uh, or even have any time to read what they've referenced. So it's always a good good idea to take notes, but especially here when he says, hey, this is where we're going to be in today, you go there so you can follow along. So Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid
1: violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that, he was being, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately an angel left him. The angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, "Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting." When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed but motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last but the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text today, I pray we would understand what Luke is doing in the book of Acts. I pray we would see what he would have us see, the ironic exodus, the the picture of a praying church in the midst of persecution, a, a state and religion uniting to persecute your people. I pray, Father, that we would recognize that in the midst of your sovereignty, there are mysteries. James is killed Peter is let go, and you're sovereign and good nonetheless. Father, I pray as we come to this passage that the saved would be encouraged and sanctified and have the peace which passes all understanding, and that those that don't know you today would for the first time know you and become Christians and become part of your body, the church. I pray that you would do your work through this sermon, through this saint. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Okay, like... (laughs) i'm just gonna i'm gonna state this uh i think i think me and this matt guy would be friends i mean what he's already done like i just just to juxtaposition what a lot of the things we watch or see typically in these sermon reviews right what we typically see is somebody summing up all of the text that he read instead of reading it they would like sum it up, make it comical, try to make it relatable, right? Instead of doing that, Matt just reads through all of the text. I mean, he basically read all of 12. He leaves out the last couple of verses, but I think that's probably because my guess would be he's going to include them when he preaches the next section if he does that, which it sounds like that's kind of what he's doing is working through Acts. And so it makes sense that he would leave those out because he's going to pick them up later. Not only that, and again, I've said this before, we don't want to judge prayers, right? We don't want to like prayer review, that that's sort of silly, but you can tell so much about a person by the way they pray, right? I mean, just to give an example, like you, somebody can say that they love their wife or like they, you know, they adore their, their, their spouse, but how they talk to them is going to really show you that. And so in his prayer, I mean, you could, it's just, it's just relational, it's caring, it's pastoral, right? It's just, a believer's prayer that you know who hears this today their eyes will be opened up they'll hear what's supposed to be said in this text and it'll change them it's just good stuff it's just right away like i would say this is a this is i'm gonna say my preferable method in opening up a sermon because now you've laid the text before the people not in part but in whole and now you my guess is he's gonna work through it that's my hope maybe seated All right, I want to introduce this sermon with some
1: theology a little bit. So if you have your Bible, go back to Ezekiel. And if you don't know where that is, whatever, just find it. You can do it, I bet. If you can't find it, then no stress. But I bet you if I gave you money, you would. (laughs) Anyways, okay. that's what I say to my kids all the time. Ezekiel 28. My kids are like, I can't do it, Dad. I'm like, I'll give you $5 if you do it right now. And And they say, I could do it. I'm like, oh, now I know. Now I know. All right, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28 now. I want to begin here and establish where we are in acts and acts and all narratives in scripture are challenging to us because there's basically two problems that we have to face in every narrative. We have to see first where we are in the story. In other words, like in the arc, in the story arc, it's like every time you come into a sermon and we're in a narrative, it's like coming into the, into the living room and, and a show is on and it's in the middle, right? That's kind of what's happening every time. So we want to
0: hundred percent. I have a feeling this is going to be another one where I just sit back and we watch this together, but we'll see because so far this is really good. Establish what's happening on the show, like what's
1: what's going on, and then we also have to establish... So what? How does it relate to us? And those two things are always the challenge of the person that comes to scripture. You don't just walk in and just take it at face value as if the show started when you came out, right? You, you recognize there's a show that's been going on. And so consider this first moment, me giving you, you just came into the living room to understand what's happening in Acts, me explaining to you the backstory of what happened. I paused the show, and I said, hold on, let me give you a, a summary. And I go to the internet or something, I bring up one of the summaries, here we go. So Ezekiel chapter 28, I want to establish for a moment, look at the first 10 verses. I want to talk for a minute about kings, the state, and Satan for a second. And uh, I want to start off that way. So in, in Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a prophecy against this person known as the Prince of Tyre. Okay, and so this guy called the Prince of Tyre is the ruler of Tyre. And this prophecy is against him. And notice what it says. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel in this case, son of man, say to the Prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you've made wealth for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you've increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, Therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God, in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. That's heavy. (laughs) Look, I, I always said I, I, I hate posers. I don't like people that pretend to be good at something that I'm actually good at. Let's say I don't like pretenders, essentially. And I'm a, a, a small person. God hates when people pretend to be God. And particularly, there's a, a problem because from the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, right, all the way to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to Caesar, right, and, 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 and all the way to our passage today, where we're getting to a, a Herod, Agrippa the first. In in each of these cases, all the way to our present government, the state, the state's normal, natural position is to deify itself. This is the normal thing. Again, we just lived through a moment where Gavin Newsom told you how many people you could have in your house for Thanksgiving.
0: Okay, so just, I think I said this church was in San Diego. So like he is, here's the cool thing. I'll say this, is that he This setup, I don't know how big this church is, but obviously there's not, like, multiple camera angles. There's not some LED light behind the stage. There's not all of this other stuff. It's basically one camera angle. It's him preaching. That's all we get. Uh, So, no clue how big the church is. But the idea is that that gives us the sense of, like, hey, we want this available to our people. But this really isn't available, like, it's not for everybody, right? It's for you guys, part of our local body, right? That's how a lot of churches, thankfully, do you know, do it if it's just for their local body, and that's why we do a live stream. It's not for everybody, um, so this seems to be that general sense. So he's speaking to his people in a in a in a specific place and time, which is in San Diego, coming out of COVID, and Gavin Newsom, and he's going to. It's, I'll be interested where he goes with this, right? Because you could go really far one way or the other with it. So let's see kind of how he how he does this in relation to the text he read.
1: Forget about safety or anything else, like the audacity to even suggest that how many balls you can bring to play tennis with has anything to do with safety. This is just pure. The government thinks right now that it can control the weather, that we can change the weather, that we can fix airborne disease. Like we can do all sorts of these things. The the government is not God. And that's the challenge that every government thinks. And it's normal. And so when we watch in the Western world, governments start to rise up as the Bible is de-emphasized we see more and more this deification of government. I've talked about this for years now, but it's the normal state of things is that the state deifies itself. And so in this case, the Prince of Tyre is the leader of Tyre who fancies himself God, just like Pharaoh, just like Nebuchadnezzar and the rest. He fancies himself God and it is there's a couple of problems with it. First, it's dumb. All right. It's dumb. Governments aren't God. They're obviously, if you actually know who's in power, this is one of the reasons why a lot of conspiracy theories are not good because you, it implies the dumb people that you see doing dumb things are actually keeping conspiracies. Uh, that's one of the challenges that doesn't mean there's not a conspiracy, but, but there it's dumb. It's dumb to think that your God is dumb. It's dumb in relationships. It's dumb in your life, but it's dumb for governments to think they're God, right? Because they're not obviously, but it also offends God himself deeply. And that's a bad enemy to have. But it's worse than that because you ask yourself, this is the normal state of things, but why is this the case? Why is it the normal state of things that people in power and particularly the state and governments and kings and the rest, why is it that they think of themselves as God? Like, what is it? Is it just like a, a, a natural disease about the whole thing? And we could say yes, and we'll get to that in a minute. But if you keep going in Ezekiel, look at verse 11, because now Ezekiel moves on to someone known as the King of Tyre. Now, this person is not a human being. I would argue that this is a reference to the, the, the king behind the king in this case, which is Satan himself. Notice the description. It says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord. Now, notice how he describes this king of Tyre. He says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, that's not a person. <laughs> Like, there's only so many people we're talking about here. He goes, every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond. Barrel, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, so you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the people are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now, some of this is future, some of this is past. Like, as he talks about this lament and talks about these things, he's talking about the power behind the king. So in one sense, we say, well, why is it that governments, you want to talk about a real conspiracy, the Bible tells you one. Every single government on planet Earth has a king beso- behind them, urging them on. And that king behind them, urging them on, is none other than Satan. <laughs> Satan! Satan! That's a, that's a conspiracy, the Bible tells you. That's what Ezekiel's telling you. He is the, the power behind that throne. And so, because it, so why is it that it's the normal state of things to deify itself? Well, because they follow in the, the footsteps of the person they follow. In this case, what Ezekiel is saying, and what God is saying in this case is Satan. And we're, we're, he was known as the prince of the power of the air. And so, this is the course of this world, but that's not only what we're talking about. Go to Ephesians
0: chapter two, because the apostle Paul kind of- Now, one of the things I wanna say here is that as he's going through, so. Two things to note. As I noted at the very beginning, he read through the whole thing. He, he could easily, to save on time, right, just reference these, you know, Ephesians, Ezekiel, and reference what they're about and give you a summary. Um, but he's not doing that. Like he's taking you to it, walking you through it, letting you see it, right? So, yes, it's taking more time but it's deeply Bible anchored because now you're having to go there, you're reading it yourself, and you're seeing that the summary, sometimes the summary that people give are not correct summaries, they lack things. But when you're going straight to the text and reading through it, you're getting all of it. And this is where also taking notes is helpful because if you're going through and taking notes on all of this, you're having it for later, you can remember it, you can study it deeper. This, this is all very important. Lays this bear for us
1: and I, and kind of reveals to us the big problem that we're facing here. So Ephesians 2, all right, so New Testament, it's not Ezekiel, it starts with E though, but it's Ephesians 2, and and okay, and so notice what Paul says, and it matches up with what I just told you in Ezekiel, and now we get to enter the picture. Notice what he says. He says, you, talking to people that used to be not Christian, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience talking about Satan, that's talking about the King of Tires type stuff, right? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, notice what he's saying here. He, he makes this crazy statement, what Paul says. He says, okay, obviously we're following the course of this world, but not against our will. Not against our will. We don't wake up and say, like, I want to I wanna be good and righteous, and then, and then we get stuck going in the way we don't want to go. He says, no, we follow the course of this world, Carrying out the desires of our flesh. And so, if you could kind of sum up the problem for a minute, none, no one is forced, none of this this idea of deifying governments is forced on us. At the end of the day, the natural state of man is to like it. The natural state of man is to like it. When you wonder why uh, countries bring dictators in, why we deify them is we want that. We want any God that's not the real God in our natural state. That's the way it is. The natural state of governments and kings, again, is to fancy themselves God and the natural state of man, the fallen man, is to agree with them in this. That is until they're born again. Once you get born again, you know, but but God, being rich in mercy, once God changes you and you meet the true king of kings, you have a new allegiance. And that new allegiance means it's no longer possible to be
0: neutral to false kings. Now, I don't don't wanna jump the gun here. We're only 15 minutes into 60 minutes, Uh, but, it's encouraging to see like that there are, not just in San Diego, right, but just all over the place in America and the world, churches that are smaller that you'll never hear of, these pastors that are preaching that you've never heard their name, that are faithfully expositing the word. I think lots of times we can get really down like this terrible, depressing hole of watching sermons that are bad, which is why I started asking for these good ones, by the way. We can get down this hole of like, oh, these are all terrible. Everyone's terrible. Oh, my gosh, there's no good preaching anymore. But there is. I mean, I think, again, I don't want to jump the gun. 15 minutes into 60 minutes. We're only a fourth of the way through. But this seems like it's going to be really good and really helpful. Let's keep going
1: which implies who the entire world, the entire course of this world, Satan and every single human being at some point at the end of the day hates what you represent they're, 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 They don't like the King that you represent. That's the, that's the, the conflict in Christianity that we face. And that, that's why it's so challenging as Christians in a culture like ours that we see the church constantly trying to make friends with the culture as if our problem is just a PR one a PR problem. If only we could just get together and get the right language, we'd all be friends, kumbaya, and then everyone would come to the gospel. But the Bible says at the outset that there are two sides in, a, in, a, in an embattled thing, right? There's two, there are two people. And so we find that our allegiance to the, to the true king puts us at odds with the, with the world that disagrees with this thing. So that brings us to the final point, which is the problem in our text and the outline of our text. Go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. So what I want to establish here is an outline that I think will serve us as we see what happens in our text in the book of Acts. In John chapter 16, if you look at verse 33, Jesus is speaking, and He is uh, saying wonderful things. His disciples are talking to Him, and Jesus answered um, in verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in Me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What Jesus is saying, again, let me repeat this. He says, in this world, you'll have tribulation. Why is that? Because this world is set on a course that is against Christ. And is against God. That's the point. He says, And so you're, not, you're against it. You're also an alien, not of this world. You're set apart. You are against the way things are going. And so he says, in this world, you'll have tribulation but take heart, be encouraged. In other words, I have overcome the world. Now let me explain to you how this relates to us. In Acts chapter 12, the apostle James is murdered by the state, by the religious state. At this point, the apostle James is murdered. The apostle Peter is put in prison and Herod is in control. By the end of the Acts, by the end of Acts 12, James will be in heaven. Peter will be free and Herod will be dead. And the gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to increase and multiply. That's what happens right now. And so we get this little bit and and it's going to continue to go out into the world through a new people in an ironic exodus, which is what I almost entitled the sermon, but I did not in an ironic exodus. So in the midst of this, we go to the main idea of our passage again. And so let's go to it now. In this world, you will have tribulation. Let's look at this first bit. So Acts chapter 12, we see this wonderful picture of the church coming forth in Antioch. And so this is an interesting idea. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, before we go too far, we have to understand the drama here. And and just go back just a little bit to verse 26 of the previous chapter. We're told, and this is the key moment, it says, Barnabas goes to Tars. They find Saul when they go to Antioch. Right For a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christian, Christians. So here's the storyline in Acts so you understand where we are. Jesus rises from the dead. This is a Jewish religion. How, where, again, we want to remind ourselves that we're here today worshiping, learning about, auditing a Jewish savior. And I dare say most of us aren't Jewish here, right? That we're, we would be considered Gentiles mostly. I mean, there's maybe a couple people that are Jewish, but for the most part, do you even know? Right? So, <laughs> but but numbers are Jewish. And so the question is, how did we get here? So, the book of Acts is a transition that shows you how this Jewish savior becomes something about the church, which transcends and is bigger and different paradigm, parad- is a different paradigm than Israel and Judaism.
0: W- one Before we get too far, I, we're 20 minutes into 60 minutes. I, I just want to stop really quick um, and say this like, his sermon building just Because, again, that's going to be probably the only thing we're going to learn from this, other than learning from Acts chapter 12 here, which has been great so far, is that his sermon building is really good. So what we've done is we've started, we've read through the whole text, right? Then he takes us to Ezekiel, lays the foundation of what it means to man always trying to be God and how that's not a good idea. Then he takes us to Ephesians, then he takes us to John and sets up this foundation that like, this is our default state. We wanna be God, we want other people to be gods, we want everybody but the real God. And that's the default state, that's what always happens. I'm sure he's gonna probably tie that into Herod here at the end but the idea is that he sets that out. Now, instead of setting that out at the very beginning and making that sort of the the jumping off point, he he read through the scripture first, which is admirable because this is where we're at, this is the foundation. Now, let's go over and do, you know, establish that hey, we're all sinners, we all want to be God without, you know, before our transformed hearts and we all want that before our transformed hearts. Then he brings us back and says, hey, that's going to cause trauma. That's going to cause a lot of things that are going on, but don't worry. Jesus said that's going to happen, but have peace because he's overcome the world. Then he brings us back into Acts and sort of catches us up on what's going on. And now with that para- you know, that paradigm, that lens is going to walk us through Acts because it ties directly in to what happens here in chapter 12. So the sermon building, I just want to say, is like really good because now he's brought us in very quickly, only 20 minutes in, very quickly into Um, not only what's gonna be happening in Acts, but sort of the buildup of the human condition up to that point that brings us to this figure, which is Herod, that has all of the traits that he's already described to us.
1: And so what you see is, uh, the gospel goes to Gentiles for the first time ever. And then all of a sudden you see that these Gentiles and Jews together in Antioch, this is the main sending church, the main church that we're going to see in the New Testament, not Jerusalem. The apostles didn't start it. It was uh, started by unnamed ordinary people. And that this place is where they were first called Christians. And so this is a new identity for a new people where Jew and Gentile are all equal in called the, in this thing called the body of Christ. It is not a nation uh, as like you would con- consider normally. It is not in a normal geopolitical entity. It is a thing called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and the building of Christ, the temple of God. So that's this new identity called Christian. Well, as we get to our chapter, we're going to see that this break is complete. What do I mean by that? We see that Christianity, the Christians in this case, transcend or or superpose in some sense Judaism. That Judaism is now not the way we think about God. It is something totally separate called the church. The church isn't just an outgrowth of Judaism, it is something new.
0: And that's important to recognize. And what Luke is showing us in our passage is not So that that part is true, but what's interesting if you look at church history, actually the distinctive, like huge break isn't actually made until like after the destruction of the temple. Like, it, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not kind of what's happening in the text there, but in like historical context, they're they're still seen as Jews, like a sect of Judaism by the Roman Empire. And there's still some, depending on where you're at, like Jews mixing with Christians and Christians with Judaism. Like there, I forget what year it is, but it's, I know it's after the discretion of the temple that there's a very clear split because there's some animosity because Christians leave uh, um they leave before the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and that sets up like this animosity with the Jews that, are, that were there and it, there's this whole big thing. Um, anyway, that being said, just a small church history point doesn't negate from what he's saying, but let's keep going.
1: Not only is this new identity called the church, the new identity that, that we're talking about, but that church is now going to be persecuted by the state, Herod, and the Jews who used to be the persecuted people of God. Notice what happens again. About that time, Herod the king uh, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This is, uh, again, and so he kills James, the brother of John, with a sword. This is one of the sons of Zebedee. He gets killed with a sword. Now, Luke just passes over it briefly. And says, but verse three is key. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, there's something, verse three is really Luke's, um, like, you want to get you want to get like your mind blown, just linger on verse three for a while. It says, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. In other words, Herod, who's a half Jew. Now, this isn't just the normal Herod. This is, you had Herod the Great that killed kids on Christmas, right? Then you had his son, Herod Antipas, the, who killed John the Baptist. And now this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. And this is the guy who's now a, basically half Jewish. And he wants to please the Jewish people because he's kind of the, the guy in charge over there. And so he so at the behest of the Jewish people, now he's persecuting Christians. So the break is complete. Jesus rises from the dead, sends his apostles to the nation of Israel. They start in Jerusalem and they go forth and finally get to Stephen being stoned to death as the nation of Israel rejects the message of Jesus. And so that they scatter abroad. The apostles try to stay in Jerusalem, but it's not looking good. God now moves and there's a church that started in Antioch. Things move on and we're given a brief moment to go back to this church in jerusalem and we see that the jews in this case have turned against the christians and they've sided with herod the person they don't like they've they've sided with Herod. so when when herod kills james from the church the the jews are like stoked they're like yes this is awesome and Herod's like oh you like that okay fine um let's arrest that guy and he finds peter and arrests peter who's one of the early leaders in the church now that's, that's bad, but Luke reminds us this was during the Days of Unleavened Bread. In other words, this is the Passover. Now, think, now stop for a second and let this sink in. And if you don't know the background, okay, fine, let me explain to you. The, the Passover was a celebration of the Jews being set free from Pharaoh in Egypt who had them enslaved. And Pharaoh was enslaving them, and he was uh, abusing them, and they were under, under just crazy shadow of terror all the time. And so then Moses comes, and God delivers them from Pharaoh through the exodus, right? You have all the plagues. You have them going through the Red Sea with Moses. And then we, we see this whole picture, and here's the great irony of our passage today. Now it is the church that is being set free from a new Pharaoh who happens to be the Jews. If that doesn't hit you, what's happened in the book of Acts? That's an interesting moment. Now, let me remind you, as I said last week, God has a future plan for the nation of Israel. He has a future. plan. Okay, ah, fine. But that's not where we are in the story right now. The story right now, there's a switch happening. The people that were the people that God was delivering are now the ones that has to be that that the church has to be delivered from. Now, the church is made up of Jew and Gentile. But this new identity is so new, this break is so significant
0: See, I, I just want to like, again, nothing to take away with what he's saying, but just to interject some church history here, which I, he clearly knows, like he knows some history. So this is probably just like a, a deeper discussion to probably be had on this or who you, who, what history you have or who you've read. Probably those sorts of things are going to play into this. Um, the Jews typically, when they're referred to in the case, as we see in chapter 12 here, are those that are in some sort of like political power, right? The reason Herod wants to please them is because there's, there's political things at stake here. This is the same thing with, um, with uh, Jesus when he's brought before Pilate. There's a reason Pilate doesn't stay governor for very long, right? So the governors that are over these areas have to maintain some sort of peace, some sort of like semblance of like normalcy between the Roman Empire and the groups of people that the Roman Empire has conquered. They don't want uprisings. If there are, they put them down immediately, but they would prefer... To have the people just live there and have their culture while Rome is sort of over them so they put people over them all the time Herod's one of them and if Herod wants to stay in his position of power which are typically either bought or only kept by keeping the peace then he's going to do things to make that political sort of uh, situation as peaceful as possible and make himself as rich as possible and as powerful as possible that's the whole goal. Uh, Bruce Gore has a really good series on church history I'll try to remember to link it below he He talks about Herod here. He actually goes to the end. He has a whole uh, episode on just the Herods. Um, It's it's really good. But the point is, there's a lot of political things happening here. And maybe he'll tie that back in later. We're only 20 minutes into 60. Well, 22 minutes into 60. And he might tie that back in because there is a lot of political things happening here between the Jews and Herod and this whole situation that's going on.
1: That the Jewish
0: people, Judaism, Israel, are now persecuting the church
1: on the Passover. There's an irony here that's hard to miss. Verse 4, so when he had seized him, he put him in prison, and he delivered him over to four squads of soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers, maybe upwards of 16 soldiers here, to guard him, okay? So it isn't just a couple, but four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, because, you know, you don't want to kill someone on the Passover, just wait till it's over first, right? Because we want to celebrate God delivering you from, from oppression. So we'll wait till after that, that to celebrate when we kill this guy that doesn't deserve it. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, the shock of this new people is kind of, an, I, I, it's, it's just hard to miss. This new identity, here's the church. Um, when, when they do this, I want you to understand that the, the scene here is a scene that we get, we're going to see repeatedly, but it's referencing this idea of Psalm chapter 2. So go back to Psalm 2. And um Let's see if we can see this a little bit. Psalm 2 is repeated. It's got a, he is quoted earlier in the book of Acts, and it applies here as well, and we'll see that the Jews understood this, or the, the early church rather understood this. Um, psalm chapter 2, notice this wonderful psalm. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I love this verse, couple of verses because the reference is to a world that wants autonomy. The, the reference of kings and the rage of peoples and the plots of peoples is to be free from the restriction of knowing there's a God that's not you. And it's like I said, we've gone to that point right now where it even comes down to our pronouns and our language. We're like, no, I myself am going to declare thus saith me, the baby in my womb is now a baby. So it is okay to have it and celebrate if I have a miscarriage and mourn. But if I haven't declared it a person, then it's just a clump of cells until I deem. Otherwise, I have declared that I am a woman or a man or a cat or a dog. I have declared thus saith me, the Lord. Like that's the picture of where we are today. And so this picture in Psalm 2 is of a people that rage against that, that want to cast away the cords of any idea that you're not autonomous. And so how do we see this? Verse four, how does God feel about this? Is he trembling? Is he scared? It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. It'd be like a bunch of ants, not even a bunch. It'd be like, I don't know, ten ants at your house that want to get you. And they're they're down there and they gather together in a clump of ten. Maybe even, maybe even 30. Let's say 100 of them. And they get together like, you know what? Not even 100. Let's say 1,000 ants get together. They're like, let's take over his car. <laughs> and, we're like, and at first, you're like, that's annoying. That's an annoying thing, right? That's annoying. But you're also not like, oh my goodness, unless you're like a child or a, someone that gets your kids afraid of spiders. But what do you do? You're like, huh. If you look at the ants like, I'm going to get you. You're like. <laughs> That's the story of God. He's not affected at all. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. They wear they wear His flesh and bones. They breathe His breath. It says, then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's like, I'll tell you who the king is, the true king of kings, and it's not you. I've set him in Zion on my holy hill. I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today, have begotten you. Ask me and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the story of what's going to happen when Christ comes back. It says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now if you think about this after looking at the long chain of herods and you see where we are in Psalm 2 there's an uh, you know the, the the again the Jews on the Passover I just I'm I'm struck by the fact that here this picture of the nations raging and the people's plot in vain the the irony in our passage is now the people raging against the Lord are the Lord's people in Israel. That's a, that's the sad moment. Now again we've talked about Romans 11 how God will will come back to them but the break, again, that I mentioned is happening on Passover is totally complete. We have to understand that. Again, the church is not an outgrowth of Judaism. It is not just a mere outgrowth. Of Ju- it's not, we are not like Jewish-ish to go back. The church is something brand new. Now, how do I know that? Peter himself, notice what he says later. Now, he's going to get out of prison, and he writes a letter. And in his letter to 1 Peter, one of the big challenges in this letter is who he writes it to. And it's, it's challenging because he writes in a way that's, cha- that's challenging to understand at first, but it's, Peter's writing to a largely Gentile church, the word Jew and Gentile together, but he's writing to a church. And in writing to this church, right, he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. That's language that's very much Jewish, but it's applied to a church now. But look at chapter 2, verse 9, what Peter says. He says, But you, talking to the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Again, we, are, we don't have a royal priesthood, we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. <clears throat> Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul." What he just says right now, I want to make something really clear. There is a sense in which God has stopped playing the geopolitical game with Israel, and he's turned to play another game called church, called the Book of Life. That's the kind of what he's doing. And when he does so, this new thing is not the same thing as before. And Peter acknowledges this. In his letter to the church, he's telling them, "'Beloved,
0: I urge you as sojourners.'" What do you mean,
1: sojourners? What's our home country?
0: Oh, heaven. This isn't, I don't know, I I could be wrong here. We'll see how he kind of gets this out, uh, how he works this out. It's not that God is playing a new game. I think, I don't know if that language I would necessarily agree with. It's, it's um, God is fulfilling the thing he set out to do from the beginning. So he sends the Messiah. The Messiah does in a, a quite different way than the nation of Israel thought it was going to happen. But God still does what he said he was going to do he then proclaims the gospel to, well, he raises from the dead. All of the apostles clearly are Jewish. They now worship this risen savior and they go out to tell um, other, other Jews about this Messiah that has come. In fact, Paul even does this when he goes out. He always first goes to the synagogues and declares that Jesus is the Christ, uh, declaring it to the people. Now again, in Acts, we do see Paul um the more he gets beat and the more he gets arrested for it um he does turn his face far more toward the gentiles in that regard i think it's it's in chapter it's, it's chapter 18 19 20 somewhere around there i forget exactly but there is this sense that um that this hap- in fact no he doesn't really turn it away but he, he does get arrested in the synagogue. I think that's chapter 20 or 21. And then that's why he gets sent to Rome. That's why he's a prisoner in Rome. Because he was still in the synagogues um, worshiping um, and they don't like him. So it's not that God has changed the game as much as the people of God don't recognize the Messiah that was sent. And so Gentiles are welcomed in anyway they were going to be welcomed in anyway but they are now welcomed in and so what we see is this incredibly jewish gentile church that later again like i said in church history after the destruction of rome there's more of a distinct split the roman empire definitely sees christians as this sort of sect of judaism even though they wouldn't say they're a sect of judaism but even from the beginning of acts we see them still going to worship in the synagogue um the the christians and then they, there is this very slow progression uh, in Acts. And then after we get in you know further into church history, this slow progression of where they are kicked out of the synagogues and not even allowed in because there is more of a distinct split um, happening. And so I, I don't know. I think maybe that could have been worded better. I don't know if I totally disagree with him as much as maybe the wording here. But the point being is that... Um, There's not as distinctive a split in Acts as I think he's making it out to be. There's definitely Jewish religious leaders that are against this movement, um, this ecclesia, this gathering of believers. But we do see um, Paul especially, even though he's an apostle to the Gentiles, always going to the synagogue first. Um, to declare that Jesus is the Christ that they had been waiting for. And so, I don't, I don't know. Like I said, I think that um, a lot of what he said here has been really good. That part maybe uh, needs to be broken down a little bit more.
1: In my country, I'm a soldier, a traveler, right? And I'm an exile. I'm, I'm exiled from this place. I'm not of this world. That's the thing. So he tells me to abstain from the passion of the flesh.
0: Also, one thing I guess I could mention in relation to 1 Peter here is that the new believers, even the Gentile ones, are being classically uh, taught the Old Testament, right? They they are converted, and then they use the Old Testament to point to Jesus as this, this Messiah. That The Old Testament is their primary text. Clearly, they don't have the New Testament yet. The New Testament is being written uh, now and then far after this. And so the Old Testament is their text. So Paul, or not Paul, Peter, when using this language for new believers, um, I think understands that and points back to language that they would now understand as they're in the Old Testament. A lot of the first converts, as best as we can tell, church history-wise, were prostitutes to Judaism in the first place, Um or these Gentiles, a lot of them were either god fears, which are like ones that worship Yahweh along with a lot of other gods, and then they, can, they understand who Christ is, and they come exclusively to Jesus, or they're proselytes, which have come from other religions and become Jewish, and then realize that Jesus is the Messiah, and then become Christian. And so, when Peter is writing this language, it is heavily Jewish language, but the reason being is that these early believers are... Still are understanding the scriptures in a very Jewish way. So when he says exiles, they would understand that. When it says sojourners, they would understand the language used all through the Old Testament in regards to sojourners. And so, I don't know, I I think, I I would contend that's why he's using this language. Not because it's a totally distinct new game, new group. As much as it is, he's relating to the people he's writing to, and he knows they understand that language, both Jew and Gentile in this case
1: wage war against your soul. And then verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Whoa, 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 whoa. These are Gentiles. And so there's a whole new scenario that's happened in our passage where there's two categories now. It is no longer Jew and Gentile. It is now the church and Gentiles. And unfortunately, non-believers, whether you're Jew or Gentile, become part of the unbelieving Gentile group. That's kind of how that looks. There's no like, you know, "We're, we're from Israel. We're kind of like the people of God. No, you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be the people of God. One day the nation of Israel will, but they do not right now. And I want to make that very clear. What Peter himself is saying is referring to the Gentiles. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. So when they speak of you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of of visitation. Jews now, I mentioned, are being associated with the world. That's setting themselves against Christ and his anointed.
0: I, I don't know that's what Peter's doing here. I mean, I just to be frank with you, I think we're reading too much into this based upon the Acts 12 passage. I mean, again, I don't want to jump the gun. I didn't want to jump the gun at the very beginning, saying that like I really like what he was doing. I don't want to jump the gun here and say that I don't like what he's necessarily doing, because he hasn't tied it up yet. He's got nearly 30 minutes to tie this up, but in relation to what Paul is writing, or Peter, man, in relation to what Peter is writing here, Um, it doesn't seem to indicate anything about Jews being related to Gentiles. In fact, Jews would have been thought to be incredibly pious people, right? Relying, unfortunately, relying too much on the law for their righteousness, but in no regard would they have been seen as as Gentiles um, in their actions. Gentiles in their actions, as Peter does refer to here, are like evildoers and do evil things. And now that you're a believer you don't do those things, I think is the correlation that's being made. I, I've, I'd have to do more study on the passage, but that seems like a reach to assume that Peter is including the Jews in the Gentile category here.
1: There's a new persecuted people, the church. And again, there's two categories, not three, not half categories. There's two categories, church. And we, we, we're remiss, guys, if we look at this kind of shift that scripture makes and then try to reinvent categories. We make up Well, we're the black church and we're the we're the Hispanic church. And we're the, like, it's like just shh. when you call yourself any kind of adjective before you say the word Christian, you're missing the point. You are either in Christ or not in Christ. Those are the only two categories. It used to be you were in Israel or not in Israel. Now it's you're in Christ or not in Christ. There's the only categories. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile, Jewish, Muslim, you know, G- a German, blah blah, 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 blah. You're in Christ or you're out of Christ from every tribe. So the only two categories. but if you're in Christ, you have enmity with the world. That's the new category. James four tells it to us. Again, don't miss this. James tells it to us this this way. James chapter four, verse four, very simple. And I wanna understand what our passage is showing. Right after talking about this new identity, they're first called Christians. What do we see next? The Christians are persecuted by the state and by the Jews. In this case, the religious state. James tells us in chapter four, verse four, he says, says, basically people, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What he's saying is, in the simplest possible, the world Christian is set against you. That is a true statement from scripture. This is not me saying like, I'm just feeling that way. Like scripture makes it plain at the most you know, objective sense of the, of the fact that the world is set against you. And here's the key. We are not called to get it to like us.
0: I, I'm, I'm just totally... Uh... So what's weird that he does here that he hasn't done anywhere else is that we don't read the full context of it. Right, so if you go to James chapter four, chapter verse one, it says, "What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, you uh, so you murder. You covet and do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your own passions. Then you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose?" It, it was with no purpose the scripture says he yearns jealously uh, over the spirit that has been made to dwell in us right so he's saying like you guys are do, you're going about this wrong the way you're trying to um, if, you know obtain things the way you're trying to fulfill your passions the way you're praying all of this is wrong and he calls them adulterous people because their their passions are they're, they're going about it in the wrong way instead of seeking the Lord that's the adulterous part And he goes, don't you know that friendship with the world, doing these things, means you are against God. So it's not, again, I don't know if this ties in directly with what he's saying. There is this enmity with the world if you are with God. But the sense that James is talking about is like your own, like what you're doing and how you're doing it demonstrates that you're trying to do it in a worldly way, not a godly way.
1: Uh, Frustrated, I was a, a newer Christian. I knew I wanted to go into ministry and I read these things called Barna reports. And George Barna is a researcher who does stats. And he goes out and he finds the state of the church. And they go out and say, the world thinks that the church is full of hypocrites. And the world thinks, I'm like, and I'm just was, I was a newer Christian who i read the Bible a lot. I'm like, who gives a crud what the world thinks about Christians? The world wants to kill Christians at some point. They hate Christians. We don't have a PR problem. Amen. If you want to have better greeters, oh, the church is unfriendly. Wow, I bet you're really friendly. The world's super friendly, huh? That's why you showed up. Oh, well, the church is like, like the, I, the church is not, does not, it just, we aren't trying to be, like, I don't care. Like, there's actually Yelp reviews for churches. I and mean, you probably looked at some of them. You, look, the comments that you see, I mean, the Yelp reviews for churches, the world is against you and we're not trying to get to like us. We're not trying to be, oh, well, if we were just nicer, then the world would be cool to us. In fact, Ephesians chapter six shows that as soon as we see this new identity established for the church, what's the first thing we see? Conflict. Ephesians chapter six says it this way. And I love this. When we look at this picture of, of um, old school covenants, right? When you'd make a covenant, what, what you'd often do is you would, a lot of this is, you know, what we can understand from some history, but like you would, you would make a, a cut in your hand, and your hand or your wrist, and they'd make a cut in your hand or wrist, and you'd, shake on that. you walk through animals, you know, something like this, but this is your covenant. And you'd say like, we're brothers. Some people say, and I haven't been able to totally corroborate this, but that, that when people would wave back in the day, it was to show like, hey, I'm a covenant brother. Don't kill me. Like, look at my hand. But, but the basic idea of the covenants that people would make together, they'd make a covenant. And one of the things that would happen is you'd see them trade armor. David and Jonathan do this. They give each other their armor. And what they're basically saying is my enemies are now your enemies and your enemies are now my enemies. Christ, God took on flesh. He makes a covenant with us to say that He takes on flesh, He he takes on flesh and He he conquers our enemy, which is death, right? He, He took on our flesh, our armor, which is terrible, and then conquered death on the cross. But He also then does something different. He then gives us His armor to face His enemy, the devil. Notice what happens in Ephesians 6. And again, the devil's not an enemy that's equal terms, but nonetheless, here we go. In Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, finally be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. We have his armor.
0: This language, covenant language. It, here would be my only critique so far. Like, I feel like we started off really good. And I'm not saying this is bad necessarily, but we've, we're now down to roughly 15 minutes. Well, what is it? 30? about 20 minutes, give or take, left to get through the entire text of Acts chapter 12, 1 through 24. And we've not really walked through a ton of that at all. Rather, we've like laid the foundation for that, talked about... Um, how man wants to be God, sets himself up as God, enjoys that position, and humanity will rally to have a king that tries to, you know, do that because that king will give us whatever we want, and we don't want God as king, and therefore we'll rally behind this evil king that thinks he's a god. And then we sort of set up that that's our natural state beforehand. We kind of came back, and then we're like, okay, well, this is the political state within Acts chapter 12, the Jews... Uh, do not like the Christians, and so that they are, you know, Herod is trying to garner favor, favor with the Jewish political party here. And so he kills James, the brother of John, and then he also arrests Peter, and that's where we're at. And now we've went on this really long trail about... Being at enmity with the world and how the world's not going to like you and how you just have to be like that's just going to be the state of things and they're going to want to kill you and there's going to be like all of this thing. So now we're, we've we've kind of come to the armor of God now, uh, but again, as he's already stated, this is very much um, uh, more of you know how to. Well, let's see what he does with it. I just uh, we, I, I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm wondering where we're going to get back to Acts. I was really anticipating like walking through verse by verse in Acts, and we're not really done a whole lot of that yet. So let's see. Um, we've established evil in the heart of man. That's the default state. Man wants to be God. We've seen that the enmity between the Jews and the Christians, and they're pairing with the power that wants, that claims himself to be God essentially and the enmity there, let's see, kind of see where we take it in this last 20.
1: It is wonderful. So remember the same book that talks about, we used to be under the side of the world, the, you know, that whole thing, that same Ephesians ends with us as an embattled people against the world, standing against the world in the armor of God. And he says again, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we're supposed to flee temptation and resist the devil. The devil. That's the picture. He goes, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. So again, when he says it's rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, that's the, Tyre, the, the Prince of Tyre and the King of Tyre. That is, the, it is literally the state. It is the, you know, the CDC and Satan. Like all of it at some point.
0: Okay, hold on. I just felt like we took a... Weird turn. Um, so we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So we do not wrestle against the the people you see in front of you, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. So there seems to be a juxtaposition against flesh and blood, which we're not fighting with, versus the uh, the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers in the present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil, right? This is why within early church history, Christians um, would definitely speak up against evil power, but they, until Constantine, until three, you know, 25 ish. And a little bit after that never really raised up arms against, I mean, they were known as pacifist. <laughs> they would not fight in fact, compared to, like, like, if you would look back in history, most people would call them, like, doormats, wimps, what, I mean, whatever you want to call it. Like, they just wouldn't raise up arms. It was a huge debate within the early church. And by early church, I mean, like, three, four, five hundreds. Should Christians even be in the military? Because you could possibly kill someone. And is that against, like, what Christians should do? And so... What you have here is um I don't know. Like he's 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 connecting this to Satan and the CDC. I don't know. This feels like it might be going in a direction that's a little weird. Let's let's see.
1: It's just not your friend. And this is at the outset, he says we wage war against this, not this isn't revolution. This isn't like, let's start a new country. (laughs) Well, kind of. I mean, I'm just kidding, we're in America, but um, but but separately, like, the, the picture that he's describing here isn't that. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having an all to stand firm. Like, I don't know how we read this, and then we're like, the government told us, they like us, let's just listen. I mean, Peter himself that tells you to obey governing authorities says this after being escaped from prison twice and getting the gospel forward against the quote-unquote law that they didn't like. He goes, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So this church, as Peter is in prison, as James is killed, to stand the belt of truth is to recognize the truth of of, of Christ, right? And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, wearing the righteousness of Christ, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, this word praying at all times is how, what we do with this armor, right? With the word of God, we have the word of God and we're praying at all times. And that's what the early church did. the entire sermon hinges on the fact that you see this persecution and what is the church doing? It says, but earnest prayer was offered by the church for Peter. And that was the weapon. That was the armor of God. You see an embattled people being persecuted from the world, which includes at this point Herod and the Jews. And you see the church, the people of God, wearing the armor of God and in prayer for Peter. Now, their prayer was not just, please help him to get along and give him like lots of treats and get him out fast. Like that's, you know, we're not sure exactly what the prayer is. But if you go back in the same thing in Ephesians, he says again, be strong in the Lord. Strength is might put on the whole armor of God so you can be able to stand right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but look at verse 14. Verses 14 to verses 19, essentially, are one sentence in the original Greek. And in that one sentence, there's only one verb. And the the verb is stand. Stand therefore. And then it tells you how to stand. Stand therefore having put on. Stand, therefore, having put on the belt of truth. Ha- stand, therefore, having, wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Stand, therefore, with the shield of faith. Stand, therefore, with the helmet of salvation. Stand, therefore, with the word of God open, praying at all times. The prayer was a midst of, of standing firm against the schemes, not just going along with it. Guys, no matter what happens, we have a response given to us that we ought to do. In this world, you will have tribulation. But earnest prayer was offered we have something to do in that tribulation. We're not merely victims. In fact, I would argue we're conquerors. Go back to our passage. Luke is establishing this. After seeing this happen, we get this beautiful picture of Peter being rescued, and it's humorous. Verse 6 to 17 says, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So like I said, there's four squads of soldiers when you add it up and he's got two different chains on him. So why is that the case? Well, because if you go back to Acts chapter five, verse 18 and 19, Peter previously was in prison and an angel led him out of prison. And so they're like, what do we do with this guy that's already escaped prison once? They didn't believe the angel thing. Well, I know, let's quadruple the guards on him. So here's Peter with two chains on him, guards all around him in prison. Like you see the setup, it's like almost like those Batman things, like I'm hanging upside down. There's a shark coming, what do I need? Like that's Peter right now in this scenario. And he's sleeping. I love this. Before, they know that he's, the, the, the reason that it's not focused on James too much is establishing that Peter's about to be executed. And so this is prior to his execution, he's sleeping like a baby. He has peace in the midst of this storm. It says, and behold, verse seven, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. This just reminds you of trying to wake your kids up for church or something. Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now, that's enough, you could just end the story there. That's cool, isn't it? That's what happened. But then, I love these little details in verse eight. And the details are meant to show us the comfort and care of God. It says, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. It's like, he didn't want Peter running out with like his shirt and just his underwear, like Porky Pig, just like, he didn't want that, no shoes. It's a miracle! God's concerned with the small things. Put your shoes on, tie your shoes, right? Put some pants on, like, let's go. Put your, don't forget your jacket, right? Dress yourself, put on your shoes, and he did so. And he says, Wrap your cloak around you. I just love that, I just love that God cares like that. I just love those details. As the church, as the world is set against his people, here's God. Like, make sure you put your shoes on. It's, it's, a, it's such a juxtaposition. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you see this world's like, ah, oh, we're gonna get you, ah, oh, we're all together. And God's like, I got you, I got you. Let's get your, get dressed. That's the picture. And so he goes and follows him. He didn't know what was being done by the angel it was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Well, like, it's already, he's already been released by an angel before. A, this one can't be real, though. I mean, like, so when they pass the first and second guard, they come to the iron gate leading the city, and it opened for them of, of its own accord. And they went out, they go along on the street, and immediately the angel leaves them. And so Peter, when he comes to himself, that means he's just sitting there. Like, you get the impression that he gets out there, the gate opens, and, and then all of a sudden the angel goes, he's just standing there blinking, like, whoa! I'm like, like they're just, he just, he's free. So Peter comes to himself and says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Here Luke makes it plain. In fact, this quote here is a quote directly from, almost directly from Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar puts the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, the fiery furnace, and God delivers them, then he says, I see a fourth one in the fire. At one point they say, they say, well, God will send his angel to deliver him from his enemies. God sent his angel to deliver him from his enemies. Peter quotes that same verse, but in this case, his enemies are actually now Herod and the Jewish people's expectation. Again, that irony, that ironic exodus that's happening is put before us. And so so then he says, he realizes he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. I love these, John, Mark. It's like, what's your name? Okay. And so that many were gathered together and they were praying. So they're they're still praying. There's a big prayer meeting. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came.
0: So here's the good thing. We have about 15 minutes left, it looks like, right around in the sermon. Um, we are back in Acts, which is great. This this is why, again, this is probably why I should watch this thing beforehand, uh, so I don't have to interrupt and be like, I hope we get back to Acts. And then, of course, we do. I could have just said that if I would have watched it through. Didn't have time. Anyway, so... The nice thing is, we are back in Acts. We do seem to have course corrected a little bit, um, back to where we were at the beginning. I'll discuss that at the. I only say that because I want to make just a mental note that when we get to the end of this, uh, to talk about that that sort of offshoot we had on persecution and, um, and. and Peter's response, I think, is what brings that to mind, right? So whenever Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angels to rescue me out of the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people that were uh, expecting. So there's this idea that Peter has that, yeah, this is going to happen. Like he wasn't going to say anything for himself. He he, he had already knew that James had been run through with a sword. He had full expectation that that was going to happen to him too. And that doesn't happen. And now he praises God. That, that didn't happen. What Peter thought was going to occur didn't occur. Now what we are going to see and what um, he'll probably point out here is that Peter goes to the house of Mary, wrote to the servant girl, sees him, and uh, they don't they're like it, we don't know what they're praying for, but it doesn't appear to be for his freedom <laughs> because they don't expect him to show up. Let's, let's get back to it to answer. Now you don't put this
1: in if this is some mythological story. these are real names of people. And their reactions aren't very complimentary. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate. So he's knocking the door. He's like, hey, it's me. And she didn't even open. She didn't even open it up. Uh, she ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She's like, uh, I hear he's outside. He's at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. They are literally praying for him. And they're like, here it is, you're out of your mind. God, would you bring in the money we need for a building? Uh, hey Matt, there's someone at the door with a uh, with five hundred thousand dollar check. Just stop that. Anyways, God, would you please help us uh, for the thing? That's what's going on. And so they, they so they, she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying it's it's his angel. They believe they used to believe there was a guardian angel. Like it's not even him. He must be. They were more prone to believe he was dead in an angel.
0: So he, here's something that I think is really interesting, is that well he kind of just brushes over that. But it's the same thing that has happened to Peter when he gets out of prison. He comes to realize that this really did happen. So why would he have confusion if it really did happen versus not happen? Well, Peter's had a few visions. As far as Peter was concerned, up until he realized that he was really out of jail, as far as he was concerned, it could have just been another vision, right? And so this reality is... The people within the church that are praying, or within her home that are praying, the church gathered, the ecclesia that are praying for Peter, um, clearly were not praying for him to be released, as much as they were likely praying that he would have peace um, or reliance on on Christ, uh, because they did not expect him to show up at the door. And so this is above and beyond their prayer. They assume their default reaction is, oh, that is, that's just uh, an angel, a messenger coming, right? So that, that is also important. Um, you're out of your mind. Uh, she, I'm sorry, verse 14. Uh, mm-hmm. She ran the gate and reported that Peter was standing there. They said to her, you are out of your mind, but she kept insisting and they said, it is his angel. Now, a couple of things there. Maybe they assumed that um, it was like an angel coming uh maybe they assumed it was uh somebody that was a messenger for him it's hard to tell honestly it does lend toward more of a supernatural um thing that they were expecting but that should tell us a little bit about the context they assumed that that was more likely than him showing up
1: angel came to say what's up then that god answered their prayers now here's the thing He's already answered it before. And, and so why is this the case? Let me just stop. There's a little b- brief moment. First of all, we want to criticize them. I don't want to criticize them at all. This is, they are not unbelief. They're praying. And they're just like us. And by the way, some people say, oh, look at their prayers. They're not in belief. God answered their prayer. So whatever they prayed, it was enough, because here we see Peter released, right? It wasn't like your prayer was insufficient because you didn't believe. Peter's standing there. It was clearly sufficient. What we're seeing is the normal state of faith is that it's still faith and faith never stops being faith, which means it's always scary and hard and to walk and live by faith is to always live and walk in the sense of surprise. Living my faith is constantly being surprised because it's my faith. I expect it to happen, but when it does, whoa. When God answers your prayer, whoa, of course, like it's surprising. And then we're like, and then later you look back, like I pray. And the answer is great. But at the time, I love capturing this. I love capturing this picture here that they're just freaked out. There's a story of in the middle of just a world that ah, you see the church that's like warm and humorous and fun and awesome. There's just like this contrast of a familial, you know, kind of humorous moment. And so Peter gets in. They open the door. They're amazed. They're astonished, and motioning them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He's like, "Shh, let me just tell you what's going on." And after telling them all these things. He says, he, tell, he says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This is, the, this is James, the brother of Jesus, who's now at this point become a believer and was one of the heads of the church. And he goes, then he departed and went to another place. Now, what, what do you think Peter wanted them to know? Why did he want them to tell the church at large that he was free? He's like, tell them and meet me, you know, at the, at the thing, we'll get the muskets. I mean, like, come on, that, why does he want to tell them? What does he want them to know? Well, what do you think he told them? I was sleeping in prison on my deathbed and look what God did. If you go to first Peter briefly, just briefly first Peter, that same passage where he talks about being exiles and, ex- and whatnot. First Peter, he says this wonderful kind of little moment. Um, first Peter chapter two, uh, look at verse 21. He, he basically says again here talking about Jesus. He goes for this, you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might fall his steps. So in what sense, notice what he says to this, you were called. There's a lesson Peter has for the church, this new group of, of, of people. And he says, well, here's the thing. You've been called to suffer, and here's your example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So, so don't suffer for sin, right? That's not what he says. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he not threatened, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Jesus do that gave Peter confidence? He said he continued to trust God's plan. He continued to trust him who judges justly. He continued to entrust himself to God. If you go forward, he says a little bit more to that. Uh, look at verse chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, "'Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed.' No, as he goes and he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God of God rests on you. If you go down to verse 19, he goes, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. When Peter writes this, he's writing to a Christian church. When, when the church, I love this, there's another little subtlety here. The church that's being persecuted in, is in Jerusalem. It's largely a Jewish church. There's not really any Gentiles really in that church. The Gentiles are all in Antioch. They're getting the reports of it, and yet they're called Christians. They're first called Christians in Antioch, and that label is applied to that church too. And so here's this church that's Christian, even though it's all Jews. They knew that they were more than that. Their identity was Christian, and and so here's Peter writing these Christians, and he's like, God's going to call you to suffer, and when you do, do what he did, and continue entrusting yourselves to him who judges just. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we're to do too. To...
0: So we did kind of come back around. I want to note that real quick. I know we have uh, roughly ten minutes here left, but the reality being that he did, he is bringing it back over. Right. We had a rough patch. We'll talk about that at the end. There about you know, just just talking about animosity with the world, but he he balances that out here with that. There's gonna be suffering, but Jesus left the example for you to suffer. This is a good example. I one of the the benefits, I guess, of watching these through and listening through without watching them first and just doing it with you guys, is that it does bring out the moments that there are gonna be things, and I'm not we're not done yet. So like let's not let's not say we're good, but there are gonna be moments in sermons where you're like, why is this pastor like saying this and it sounds so confusing, right? And as pastors, we need to realize that and then bring in the other side of that if it's there, right? So he talks very much about animosity with the world, but he is balancing that out with Jesus is the example and how to deal with that animosity um, on this other side of it. So uh, that that's good. And that, again, the sermon building is, if that's purposeful, which it seems to be, it, it's good sermon building too
1: continue. He's like, look at me, I was, I was sleeping, and look, he delivered me. But you say to yourself, yeah, but he didn't deliver James. Yes, he did. James is worshiping God in heaven. You say to yourself, well, Matt, that's, that's not really deliverance. That's not what I mean. Well, maybe what you mean isn't the right thing. Go to 2 Corinthians 4, briefly, briefly. I want to establish for a minute that death is not the defeat of God's sovereign plan, just the opposite just the opposite. 2 Corinthians 4, notice what Paul says. He says this way, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. That means we don't get discouraged. We take heart. But we've renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Why? Because even though it's going to offend people, we don't tamper with it. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God's world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Who's the image of God? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, as King, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, that's exciting, but then he goes on. But we have this treasure... This gospel treasure in jars of clay, but to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Rather, they're driven to prayer, right? Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, in the case of James, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of jesus so the life of jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for jesus sake so the life of jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh so death is at work in us but life in you since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written i uh, faith, according to what was written i believe and so i spoke we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the lord jesus will raise us also with jesus and bring us with you into his presence For it is all for your sakes that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. What did Jesus say? In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. What did Jesus say? Do not fear those who kill the body. I have nothing more they can do to you. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who has the authority to cast you into hell. And he goes, fear not. Are you not of much more value than many sparrows? I mean, you get this picture here of like what's the value of things. And trust yourselves to a Faithful creator while doing good. And Paul again goes further. Let me say it this way. Let me sum up what he just said. The state cannot stop us. What's the message that Peter is telling this church? Hey, go tell James and the brothers. Go tell the, leaders of the, go tell the leaders of the church, the Christian church. What's the message? The state cannot stop us. Nothing can stop us. Why? Well, he's overcome the world, my friends. Nothing can stop us. He's overcome the world. And sometimes we get a small preview of what we have in this next section. If you look at verse six eighteen, rather, it says, When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. I want to contrast now this beautiful picture of the church, and let's look at the world. When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers who would have become a Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. So this could either be the couple sentries or all 16 guys guarding him. But regardless, Herod wanted to please the Jews further and put these guys to death. He didn't have to in this case, but he did. And then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and spent time there. So the end of the story is, like, we just got ready to see that the church, like, God will not forsake us. And here you see the picture of the world. And what happens? These guys are serving the world. And what happens? The world forsook them pretty good, didn't it? The world turned on them really quick and just killed them right on the spot. But then now we go back to Herod, the guy who thinks he's a god, and the Jewish people who agreed. It says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Now notice, in this case, they want peace. And this, the peace is really this underlying picture that we see here. Here's a church, Peter sleeping. Here's peace, peace in the Lord. And here's people that want peace in government. You see the contrast here? They want peace in government. They want peace in the, in the new Lord and in Herod in this case. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. And you get the impression that Herod's like, yup, yup. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. His, his leadership lasted four short years. He had everything and lasted four short years. It says he was eaten by worms, some stomach, th- I don't even know what that means. That's gross. But it doesn't mean he died and was eaten by worms, it means like parasite or something killed him right away. Like just, Josephus tells that he died five days later, but an angel lord did it, he dies from some stomach thing that's really bad. You don't want that?
0: I do appreciate, real quick, I know he's been going for a while, um, that... He brings in Josephus at least, right? There are accounts, and this is just, again, I'll talk about this at the very end. We're almost there. Um, We're kind of at the recap. But there are, like, other accounts uh, that are parallel historically, Josephus being the most, he writes the most, that are really interesting to compare alongside the New Testament. Uh, We'll talk about that at the end, but I do appreciate that he brings that in.
1: Four years in power. The voice of a God and not a man. Four years he dies, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And here we are. And that's the contrast. That's the whole contrast in Acts. Four short years and the gospel goes on. Here. But why does the gospel increase and multiply, guys? Go back, if you will, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Why did it increase and multiply? I could take you to First Timothy. I could take you to 2 Timothy. I could take you to these places. But why did it increase and multiply? Earlier, when they were facing persecution, I want to show you what they did. You see them persecuted originally in the book of Acts, the first persecution. And so here we're reminded, why is it increased? Yes, God's word prevails, but not in a vacuum. Like we have a part to play. What do I mean by that? Earlier it says when they had further threatened them, they let him go, find a way to punish him. Um, but so this is when the people kind of liked him. So look at the fickleness here. And so they basically released them, their friends. They beat him up and released him. In verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and now they're going to quote Psalm 2, which we already read. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. In other words, they said, you were good. You worked this out and it looked bad. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What do you think happened during the persecution? you think they just hid out and were like, oh, let's hide out. Let's just not go. Let's not have church. No, the persecution happened and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness and trusting themselves to a faithful creator while doing good, which was to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They weren't like, we need to replace Herod and reform the system. They weren't like, we need to like paint schools. They're like, we continue to preach the word of God with boldness and it increased and multiplied and Herod died. And that's the story and the picture of what we call. But the th- th- question you have to ask yourself is how could they do that though? How could they have such confidence in persecution? Because it's not fun to be persecuted. The passage I told you that is the outline of our sermon, John 16, has a little caveat that I've been alluding to. John 16, verse 33, again, is the outline of our passage. Notice what Jesus says, 1633. Again, he says, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Here you see him overcoming Herod. We get a preview of it. But before saying that in the same sentence, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. The contrast, in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome that world. But in me, you can have peace. Guys, really quickly, they had peace, not in the world, they had peace in Christ. If you go back to verse 14, Jesus says it this way. Verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I'm w- still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance. that I've said them to you. Peace. I leave with you. My peace. I give to you not as the world gives. Do I give it to you? What, what does the world give? The world promises a peace, but they don't, how to, how to work out for the guards, how to work out for Herod, how to work out for the Jewish people that said, Oh, Herod, he's a God. Oh, he died. How to work out for Herod. He's dead. How to work out for the Jew, the, the, the guards, they're dead. The world promises you peace, but it will forsake you at every turn. But Jesus says, I give you peace not as the world gives. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christian, you have a choice today. Christian, you have a choice today. You will not find peace in the passions of this world. You will not find it in the pursuit of power, prestige, or prosperity. You will not find it in politics or popularity, no matter how politically correct you become. But you can find peace right this second, no matter what's going on. Why? Why can you find it right this second? Final verse. Go to Matthew chapter 27.
0: He definitely has verses.
1: Matthew 27. And we're going to end it here. Jesus on the cross. Why can we have peace? Why can we have peace? Let's understand this. Jesus on the cross. Matthew uh, 27 verse 45. It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. What happened here? Jesus was forsaken by the world. He was forsaken by his people. He was nailed to a piece of wood. And now the entire creation, he's forsaken by creation itself, the one he made. It turns dark. It, you get the picture of creation turning its face away from Jesus in this moment. And then about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani." That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the world forsook Jesus and nails him to a cross. Creation itself shields its eyes and turns away. And finally, Jesus, standing there alone, sees God, the Father, who's always with him, turn his back. And he felt forsaken. And the eternal God accepted and and took that for us in that one moment. Why? 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 He bought it at a terrible price, my friends, so that you never have to be forsaken ever. You never have to face that ever. You never have to face it. In the world, you'll be forsaken. The world will forsake you. It will let you down. It will abandon you. will look at hair. Look at the guys that we see. And here's the weird part is the world will forsake you. Without Christ, the world's going to forsake you. And here's the worst part of all. Then you're going to get to heaven and meet the Lord, and he's going to forsake you. Unless you're in Christ. That's, that's the point unless you're in Christ. Take heart. In Christ, you're never forsaken. Take heart in me. You can have peace. You don't have to fear. In me, you will never be forsaken. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Let's pray. God, as we come to this wonderful passage today and understand the invitation therein, I want to first pray for those that don't know you. I pray for those who are embattled with a world that disappoints them constantly, with their own self that disappoints them constantly. And I can, I just pray that you'd recognize That they would recognize, rather, that you brought them here for a reason, that you are a merciful, wonderful God. And they would see your wonderful offer of salvation that cost them nothing because it cost you everything. I pray they would reach out by faith and trust in the finished work of your son right in their seats right now. They would just say, God, I I, I no longer can trust in my own self-righteousness. I no longer can try to be a better person, but I trust in your finished work. Save me. Save me. And Father, I pray that you would fill them with your Spirit, that they would be motivated to get baptized so we can all celebrate what happened. And I pray for those that know you today, that we would recognize that we are an embattled people, and we are not called to reform our culture, but to preach the Word boldly in the midst of this culture, no matter what. We hear this over and over again, and yet your Word tells us over and over again. Embolden us, Lord. Help us to remember that we can have peace in the midst of this tribulation, and we can go forward with the progress of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Okay, let's go back to the main screen. What? There we go. Hey guys, welcome. Man, that was—it was a little roller coaster there. So let's let's go over uh, the whole thing, right? So the things that we always look for in each of the sermons are: do they read the scripture? Do they exegete the scripture using context and culture? And do they preach the gospel of Christ? Now, just flat out, I want to say right away, he hit every single one of those points, right? Not only did he read his main text, he primarily read all of the text. James 4 was the only one that I feel like maybe we skimped on a little bit, but every other place we read through all of the scripture in many of those places using context and culture to exegete what was going on. Now, I do want to stop there because there is that place that I talked about like in Ephesians about flesh and blood and the CDC and Satan and all of these things. I think that that would be a very interesting discussion to have with him. And ultimately we'd probably come back to being on the same page and maybe it was like words used or analogies or whatever. And it was just misunderstanding on my part probably uh, would be how I would imagine that going. But all of the rest of it, as far as the church history, he interjected, the things he said, the only other disagreement I would probably have is like the break, the distinctive break between Jewish and Christian. I think church history sort of shows us that that happened a lot later on. and the language that Luke is using maybe is purposeful in making his point in the text, but isn't necessarily a huge break as that sort of defined. But again, that's more squabbling over points and, you know, getting into church history and actually talking through it. It doesn't negate what is actually happening in the sermon. So all of that context and culture that he used within the sermon, I think was great. Uh, And the nitpickiness is just 100% on me in that regard did he present the gospel? At the very end, I was actually curious how he was going to, or if he was going to, present the gospel, and then the closer we got to the end is how is he going to fit it in here, but he does it anyway. Not only does he encourage the Christian at the very end of the sermon to have peace and trust in the Lord and not be tempted to trust in the world, but he he brings and opens the door for unbelievers to say, look, if you trust in the world, you know it's let you down. Let me tell you about a person that won't and that you can trust it and have peace and his name is Jesus. He does, like I said, at the end, he, uh, in the, end of the prayer there, he said it's not our job to reform the culture but to just preach the gospel. Um, that was encouraging given sort of the language in the middle there that uh, was a little ambiguous to what he thought Christians should be doing in the culture. But he brings it back around there, um, which is, again, this is why it's important to listen to the whole sermon um, to take notes on the whole sermon, to really dig in to what's being said and to think about it. And if you have questions, to have the, like ask them to your pastor, right? If there was something that was uh, unclear, like if I was in his congregation and he was my pastor, I'd probably clarify some of the church history stuff uh, or like what he meant by a few things. It's not He's not my pastor and it's not make or break on anything, so I'm not gonna do that. But I think that overall, this was great sermon building. It was so super text-based and it had a lot of either deeper church history or like skimming the surface to let the people that were listening know like there's more here if you're interested in it, right? Um, I would not be surprised at all if people came up to him afterwards and asked who Josephus was or like maybe some books on church history so they could get to know the context better. That would almost be expected, given the fact that he sort of interjects it and plugs it in little bits throughout the sermon. So overall, he hit every point. It was really good. I was a little worried uh, about the, you know, this was suggested as a good like a gospel center preacher and they're near the middle, as you could probably tell, I was a little concerned, but uh, we definitely wrapped it back around and I was wrong um, in that in being you know being worried in that regard. And I think, again, That's why we should watch the whole thing. That's why we do watch the whole thing. And if you find this sort of thing helpful, make sure you like, subscribe, and share. And I'll talk to you next week.